Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. Oh, wow. This is so awesome. Thank you guys for coming to this live recording at the Gospel Coalition. How do you, how, Jen, JT, how do you feel? I'm tired. Is anybody else tired? Yeah, it's going to, and when we're tired, things go very normally. So I wouldn't worry at all that we'll be nuts up here. Yeah. Yeah, big nap tomorrow. Huge, huge nap. Yeah, and in classic JT fashion, I need you to get closer to the microphone. Oh, here we are. Sometimes they keep me breathing into it. Like, I can't do that here. No, you never see this, but multiple times before we will record any episode, I have to tell JT, hey, please get closer to the mic. And then he'll get like this, a little bit closer. I go, just a little bit closer (laughs) than that. Yeah, and it's then, like telling your annoying little brother to put the mic a little closer to his face. Exactly, and yeah. he he loves it. He eats it up. But I just feel like we're having really a fun conversation. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is good. This is totally normal. For years, yeah. <laughs> we recorded in what was effectively a closet uh, in a church yeah. building, and then we moved online during COVID. Um, now, the only time that we record live together is in front of hundreds of other people. So <laughs> it's uh, it definitely has changed the game a little bit for us. But um, I, I, I am really excited to be here. We're thrilled to be here. I don't know if you guys saw my new shirt that I have here. Um, Oh, that's new. It's brand new. I love it. Yeah, thank you. This is maybe one of the only times I've seen Kyle not in a black shirt. I I know. Um, And I'm wearing it because Midwestern is partnered to sponsor this episode of Knowing Faith. Yeah, let's give a hand for Midwestern. Uh, so I, I, I did, I did want to say this about Midwestern because they have some cool swag. Um, but maybe despite anybody knowing it, maybe you've missed this. They've been assembling arguably the best faculty at an evangelical seminary in the country. And if you have not caught up on that, you need to go check out what they're doing there. And one of the coolest things they told me at the booth this week was this. Um, they have starting this fall, they have 100 first year full tuition scholarships for residential master students. I don't know anything else like that. That's a that's a hundred scholarships, full first year scholarships for residential master students. That's unbelievable. So if you're thinking about doing a residential master's degree and you're thinking, hey, finances are really tight, which is completely normal and ordinary, guess what? Midwestern is trying to remove one of the greatest obstacles by saying, you know what? Why don't you come here, apply for one of these scholarships and you could get your whole first year covered. That's an incredible gift. And I just don't want to rush past that. That's an unbelievable thing. I just want to give a hand for Midwestern. Can we do that? Now, I used to hear people talk about, did you ever fly into the old Kansas City airport? Yes. Has anybody flown into the old Kansas City airport? Then you know it was an absolute disaster. JT, talk about it. Well, my grandparents, I grew up going there. They lived in Kansas City. So I was like an eight-year-old. And so I don't know that I had like the adult experience. I just remember my parents always like yelling uh, in line because they were like, it just created like this super tense moment. I'll also say this though, like I live in Denver, Colorado now, and I would put DIA up on par with the old Kansas. I know that you guys don't believe me. I'm telling you, you get 12,000 steps in at the DIA airport, even just to get to your flight. It's bad. Plus that horse with the creepy eyes. Yeah, the horse. There's a creepy horse outside of that Denver airport. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, okay. So on this episode of Knowing Faith, we're talking about Sinai, salvation, and the law. And uh, you are probably kind of just maybe burnt out on Exodus at this point. Um, You've heard a lot about Exodus. No, that was first Samuel. Uh, yes. You are so bad. You're going to meet Samuel in the New Jerusalem. You're going to meet Paul. And he is going to have words Jerusalem. for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, you did in our earlier session today. You threw Ephesians under the bus again. Yeah. 
Again. <laughs> and no, it's not Ephesians' fault. It's, no, it's, it's the people who want the short studies. It's their enough. fault. Fair enough. But also, Ephesians is boring. What? Oh, oh my goodness. Midwestern Seminary, our sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all scripture is breathed yeah. out by God. First Daniel and Ephesians. Just want to cover all our bases. So we do believe the whole Bible is the full counsel of God. So, all right. We're going to not talk about First Samuel. We're not going to talk about Ephesians either, although that's what I would like to talk about is Ephesians, <laughs> truthfully. Um, we're going to talk about Exodus. Um, why all this interest in Exodus? Like, why, why do you think? You wrote a whole study on Exodus a number of years ago. You've been teaching on Exodus for a while now, many years, you know. Uh, you've been thinking and teaching through Exodus. We're doing a whole conference on Exodus. Why the interest in Exodus? Well, there's such a need in the church for Bible literacy to be restored, and you cannot hope to understand the Bible as a whole if you don't start at the beginning, because all of the seeds that are going to grow into the the vines that are going to go all the way to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, are planted there. And so all of the themes that you need to understand in order to understand the Bible as one continuous story are built out there. And it just doesn't get any better than that. I I don't hate Ephesians, but Old Testament narrative is the best. And yeah. so Exodus is, and you know, and also the reason, another reason that I love to teach Exodus is because it's it's another one of those books where people know just enough about it. Um, like familiarity breeds contempt. They're like, yeah, 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 I know. I remember the flowing robes and Charlton Heston and I, I've got that nailed down. And um, it, we know just enough about it that we lack curiosity about it. And we don't realize that we probably only have a patch work, understanding of that book as a whole. And then we, uh, beyond that, don't know how to look for it in other books of the Bible. So I just, I love it. That's right. Now, JT, so as we've been going through Exodus this season, what do you feel like is sticking out to you? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Jen. There's all these seeds that are planted in Exodus that come to fruition. And if you're trying to understand the Old Testament narrative, they're it, all of all the Bible is inspired and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, it's all authoritative and errant and, and true. But then there's also hot spots in scripture that become kind of these pinnacle moments. And Exodus is one of those moments. Again, not to suggest that, there are, that every Bible, is, every book isn't equally important. It is to say the whole imaginative framework of scripture is dependent upon some of these themes that we find in Exodus. The most important one perhaps is just liberation. God rescuing a people yeah. from slavery and delivering them into the promised land. When we begin to understand that part of God's people's story, it begins to make so much more sense that that's the imaginative framework that the New Testament authors are working with as well, that God has a people for himself that are in the domain of darkness, and they're going to be transferred and delivered to the kingdom of his son. Of course, uh, birth narratives, rescue narratives, redemption narratives, uh, slavery narratives, I and mean, there's so much here for us to, to unpack so that we can have a full picture of the story of scripture. That's right. And I do think one of the things that we've talked about on the show, and we've talked about this in past seasons as well, and we've mentioned it a lot this season, is that there are books of the Bible that just seem to reverberate just a little bit louder. It's not to say that they're more important or they're less important. It's just to say that their ripples, both before and beyond the book itself, seem to really go far. And Exodus is one of those books. I mean, I think about Isaiah that way, and Daniel, Genesis, certainly. Um, but those books seem to just reverberate across the rest of the canon, and specifically into the scope of the New Testament. And I think you've heard, oh, I mean, listen, if you've gone to any of the sessions, you're hearing a preaching that is connecting the themes in Exodus or the text under consideration with New Testament fulfillment. We shouldn't be shocked by that. The whole Old Testament is pointing towards what's coming in the New, but Exodus has some really close connections to be made, doesn't it? It has some really clear connections to be made. And I do think one of the things that's most encouraging about Exodus's kind of timelessness in terms of speaking to the contemporary experience is that sense of wondering, right? And the sense mm -hmm. of wilderness and that sense of uh, being uh, caught between the already and the not yet. So sojourners. Yes, right? Say more about that for a second, because I do think that that is a part of the way it resonates with our human experience, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the theme of exile, as we've picked up in Genesis chapter three, is a theme that we're going to see throughout the whole storyline of the Bible. And even Peter picks this up for God's people in first Peter. They're the elect exiles. And so that gives us a picture of how God's people would have understood themselves in, in Egypt. I mean, so much of the story of the Bible is God's people asking themselves, is God going to be faithful to his promises? He's told, he's told us, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to give them a land. He's going to give them redemption. He's going to give them his presence that, that, that one day exile is going to end. And God's 
people, one of the very first things they do after their liberation is again, begin to question God, which is even a questioning of their own identity as being the people that he said he will deliver. And so they're wondering, you know, maybe we should go back to Egypt. Why did you bring us out here? Moses is wondering, why did you give me these people? I mean, there's so many questions and really all go back to this root core of, can God be trusted? Is he going to do what he said he's going to do? Will he finally accomplish in us what he said he would accomplish, namely bringing his presence back to this earth to restore all things forever? Well, and it's a picture of our story, like the Exodus story is our story. And so you look at the way that the book breaks out and you have the first half of the book where we have getting Israel out of Egypt. And then the second half of the book, we discovered that we have to get Egypt out of Israel. And if that isn't the Christian life, I don't know what Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's that we're saved into the kingdom of light. And then we discover that we are still dealing with an internal uh, propensity toward darkness that still has to be dealt with. And so the book gives us this very clear delineation of justification and then sanctification in a, in a way that is memorable and I think is actionable too, because, you know, there are you know, we'll get into this more, but they're, they're given the law at a particular time for a particular purpose. And they're told it's going to go well for you. Yep. Uh, and then we know the rest of it. And it's really too bad that we can't, you know, go beyond the story of Exodus um, because, oh, hey, maybe we can guys. Maybe we can. I mean, I think probably not today. Yeah. No, shoot. I am well, seeing a clock ticking down. So I don't know that we can no. cover Are you guys the rest free for like six Bible, weeks? Cause but, we could uh, just, no. Okay. Well, um, okay, we are going to get to the law in just a minute, and I do want to start thinking through that. I do want to point out that on the screens, there is a link for Slido, um, and it just went away, um, so uh, that's that's my fault. Uh, but uh, this is a newsletter link that you can sign up for to kind of stay in touch with us. This is, if you go to slido.com and you punch in this number right here, we're going to be doing a Q&A with the three of us and Dr. Barrett and Jared Wilson once we get kind of get done with the meat of this episode. And so if you want to ask questions, the next time it rolls up on the screen, just go to Slido, punch in that number and you can submit a question there and we would be glad to take your questions. Now, Jen, you wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. Yep. Now, when we think about uh, the value and the spiritual benefit of the law, I'm curious, why did you write a book on the Ten Commandments? I wrote a book on the Ten Commandments because for so long I heard law pitted against grace. Um, But it occurs to me, even if you think about the way that the um, Sinai covenant relates to the Abrahamic covenant, that there is a very real sense in which the law is a means of grace in the life of the believer. It shows us how to live God's way in God's world. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And so, um, but what I had heard for so many years was, you know, we're not under the law anymore and um, grace covers us. And those are actually beautiful truths. Those are beautiful truths as they relate to justification. The work is finished. Uh, We don't have to work to earn our salvation, but it is the good labor of the believer to know that God's law points us to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is the narrow path. Um, Not all options are open to us if we want to live the life that brings glory to God. And the law delineates for us what the good and safe path is. So in a very real sense, the law that hung over us and our justification and condemned us, it now lies beneath our feet as the path to pleasing God, um, not earning his favor, but out of gratitude because we already have it. So when we disobey, when the Egypt that is still in our hearts rears its head, we don't lose relationship with the Father. Um, We don't even fall off of the path of sanctification that he has put us on. It might slow us down a little bit, but grace restores our footing and pulls us toward being conformed to the image of Christ. And the law does that for us. It shows us what Christ did because Christ fulfilled the law and obeyed the law perfectly. I love that. Just by a show of hands, if you're willing, um, how many of you have read kind of as you've thought about the gospel and then you go to the psalmist and you read all of this celebration of the law? Has anybody ever wondered like, why is the psalmist celebrating the law? You're lying if you if you're doing your hand up. <laughs> the first time I read that, I thought, "What do you mean?" Because all I really heard was, "Man, the law, gosh, condemnation and judgment." Then I read the psalm and say, "Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night." I was thinking, "What's he doing? Meditating on his own judgment." But the reality is, is that there is a sweetness to the law that can be recovered. And you're biting your lip now, which is your universal sign. A hot take is rolling up inside of me. Okay, especially as it relates to my, what I just said about Ephesians. So we're actually in Galatians right now in my Bible study at my own church. (laughs) And I taught, oops, I taught on the passage uh, about law and grace just just last week. And um, 
And I think that because the Pauline epistles, first of all, Paul is, is addressing in many cases, is addressing that um, the Judaizers who are trying yes. to impose in particular the ceremonial law yeah. uh, on, on Gentile believers. But I think because the Pauline epistles, so many of them are short and we've spent a lot of time in them, this is my hot take, that we have an over-realized sense of Pauline theology that isn't always balanced by other passages in, in the Bible that talk about the beauty of the law. Uh, and so it's not Paul's fault. It's probably just our fault that we aren't broadly enough. So how, let's have a show of hands. How many of you have studied Ephesians? How many of you have studied Ephesians more than once? How many of you have studied the book of Exodus chapters 1 through 40 in its entirety? How many of you have studied that more than once? Okay, and you, you would imagine if we continued the hand-raising exercise, most of us have done multiple rounds through the Pauline epistles. We need them, but I think it is fascinating when you start spending time in the wisdom tradition yes. and when you start spending time in um, even the Gospels, listening to what Jesus preaches on, it begins to be apparent we have a more complicated relationship with the law than just yep. that's behind you. Um, but it's actually a really good thing to understand uh, the role that it continues to have in the life of the believer. Absolutely. Well, I, I do want to drill down on one moment at Sinai with the giving of the law. And I want to talk uh, specifically about uh, the covenant uh, that's being made and also too what's happening with the law for the rest of the book of Exodus. And to do that, I want to invite up a couple of guests and I want you to applaud for them uh, and to welcome them to the stage with me. So I'm going to invite up Dr. Matthew Barrett and Jared Wilson. Thank you guys for being here. Um, I, I will point out, I did get some copies and I have these for, if we use one of your questions in the Q&A time, I've got some swag stuff for you, but this is Dr. Barrett's new book, The Reformation as Renewal. I have joked with Dr. Barrett that once you're done reading it, it also makes a great home defense tool. Um, <laughs> uh, it is, this is a weighty book, Dr. Barrett. And, and, I, and I did notice when I got it from him today, his son Charlie's here with him. Charlie has a backpack and you had your son carrying this book. He's your Sherpa. He's read it too. Okay. <laughs> I was impressed. I was like, Charlie, your dad owes you like some calories because you've been burning them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so we have this right here, which is a wonderful book. If we pick one of your questions come up afterwards, I'd be glad to give you this copy here. And then the other one we have is uh, not nearly as long. Uh, it's by Jared Wilson called Friendship with a Friend of Sinners. Uh, yeah, and my wife has not read it. Okay. <laughs> Yes, she has. I'm okay. sorry. I'm, I just bear false witness against my wife. So. Oh, well, you've broken <laughs> the law, way, so the we're law about to talk about that. Good way to start a podcast. <laughs> so if we use one of your questions, please come up afterwards. And I've got some stuff from Midwestern. I've got these books for you. But Jared, Matthew, thank you for joining us. I did want to talk a little bit about the giving of the law at Sinai. Um, what is the significance of Mount Sinai and Israel's story? Like if you were just asked, like, hey, how— how important is Sinai? We talk about the exodus from Egypt. We talk about the release and the, you know, the, the crossing of the Red Sea that, wow, that would have loomed really large as an event. But when we think about Israel's self-understanding, well, gosh, how weighty is Sinai? Is it a small thing or is it a big thing? It's huge. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Uh, I, I don't know that we could overemphasize its significance in this in the story of the Bible, as well as the story of Israel. When you think about the book of Exodus, this is where God reveals his name. Mm -hmm. I am who I am. And that is sufficient enough for Moses to go back and deliver the people of God yeah. so that they can then come and worship this God who is that holy. The name itself communicates he is set apart as the Holy One, the one who is life in and of himself, the creator of the world, the creator of the covenant that they know from Abraham. This is the God that they then, then liberates them, and then they get to come to him and enjoy worship with him, as well as communion as then they are given the law, a rule for their life, which shows all the more why the story is so tragic, why it, from the very beginning, unravels before it even starts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I, I would be curious to hear just when we think about um, Israel's journey out of Egypt and into the promised land, what is really happening at Sinai? I mean, we know that God is speaking, God's ascending on the mountain, there's the giving of the law, but how much of Israel's um, 
oh, how much of their life is now being reshaped by the revelation that they're getting at Sinai? I mean, what do you think? I'm asking all of you, We're not, not just the two guests we have up here, but I'm curious how much Israel is standing at the foot of the mountain and how much of this is new information for them, or if it's recollecting, if they're remembering mm. some long forgotten truths, forgotten under the yoke of slavery. Any thoughts on this? Well, I want to put these guys on the spot. <laughs> I don't know that it's an either or situation. Uh, so maybe it was a trick question. It um, wasn't, but uh, go for it. <laughs> the answer sounds good, though. Uh, it's somewhat of a both and, mm -hmm. because I know that we open our Bibles and we start reading Exodus, and the temptation is to think that this strange new world of Exodus is coming out of nowhere. But it's not. Uh, one of the things that Moses has to keep saying to them is, this is the God who made those covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and now he's coming through. And his providence is so powerful that at this moment, though everything you see with your eyes says otherwise, he is going to deliver you from your bondage. And he's going to start bringing about those covenant promises in ways you could not even imagine. So in that sense, uh, it's not an either or. It is, this is the story continuing. And yet at the same time, he's going to bring them to the foot of the mountain because he needs them to tremble first. If they do not have a proper fear of God, then how will they ever follow this God into the land that he has promised to Abraham. Yeah. One way to think of this in terms of just the Christian life is until you have, think of how Proverbs emphasizes this over and over again, until you fear the Lord, you will not have not just a proper knowledge of God, but you will not know how to live Karam Deo in before the very face of God. Mm -hmm. So, it's no wonder that they have to come to the foot of Sinai and tremble. And immediately you see the difference, don't you? Because idolatry and true worship, that is what is at stake. Right. So sometimes we can think of the doctrine of God as if, oh, this is so irrelevant and disconnected from Christianity and the Christian life. They are coming to Sinai to understand who this God is so that they know how exactly to live in the covenant by which they will receive those, those many blessings that he's promised to Abraham. Kyle, you asked, is it new information? I, I think the thread goes back even further to the garden, right? The original exile from the paradise of the garden, from perfect intimacy with the Lord, whatever that looked like, to then trembling in the bushes as the Lord comes walking in the cool of the evening, yeah. right? And then they're cast out of this mm. and it's guarded. They cannot come in. There's a fiery angel there. So there is the, the palpable sense of the, the weightiness of God's holiness, the trembling, the fear, um, even the threat of death, yeah. even. And so when you have this journey by pillar of cloud, you know, pillar of fire, you know, into uh, um, to follow the Lord, I think that's still sort of like, well, he's cast us out. Mm -hmm. But he's not just saying, you can't come in here anymore. He's saying, follow me. Yeah. And I may, you may not know day to day where you're going to end up, but just keep following me. And so I, I think even the, um, the, the weightiness, not just as a reminder of God's holiness, but as a reminder of his, um, maybe the word is trustworthiness, of his sturdiness, of his reliability, of his um, you know, uh, um, we, we cannot approach his glory, but yet he's, his glory is going to lead us. Yeah. I think there's a connection all the way back to the beginning, not right. just to the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. And, and I think part of that beginning too, I, I agree with everything you guys said is they're recollecting that their entire purpose as being human image bearers is to live and enjoy God's presence, to yeah. live quorum Deo. And they're now given not only the law, but eventually the tabernacle, this right. this mobile Eden in some sense, a, a shadow of the heavenly reality, but that we are supposed to be in this place, in the presence of God, adoring him, delighting in him, worshiping with him, and that he's eventually one day going to bring this new Eden, the re-Edenization of the world to mm -hmm. this world forever. Yeah. The, the mention of Adam, that was so genius of you, because... Thank you. <laughs> 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 when we think about 
the law of Moses, uh, there is a clear connection between what we call the moral law mm-hmm. and the very righteousness of God. And that goes all the way back to Adam. Uh, this is one of the reasons why theologians will sometimes talk about a covenant at the very beginning, a, a covenant of works uh, in which God's uh, moral law is right there with Adam and Eve uh, so that who he is is plain to them and what he has created and then becomes all the more plain and what he then reveals about himself. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. Ten Women Who Changed the World as Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. Ten Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. And I, and I do want to ask a question there. You just brought something up. You, you, have you... Matthew, this, that was a perfect segue in. So as a podcast host, I just want to commend you for that because you read the run sheet and these two jabronis right here almost never. Is there a run sheet? Read the run sheet. So, um, he's not lying. I mean, it's totally true. I'm a very busy person. Yeah, I know you clearly are. Um, I, I do have a confession to make because I can just feel Jared staring into the back of my head right now. <laughs> well, I agree with these um, podcast preps for nerds. Oh, just, wow. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it it was you, about 15 minutes ago that Jared said, hey, you read the, the PDF that they sent us, right? And I said, what are you talking about? Yeah. A true yeah, pro. that's the kind of strong preparation Dr. you can expect in Midwestern Seminary. Yeah, he's <laughs> so, so Jared Man. really is the one prepared, yeah. not, not us. <laughs> yeah, your, your marketing department isn't appreciating your honesty right here, <laughs> Dr. Barrett. Um, okay, no, but I do have a question here on covenant. Um, uh, when, you're, when you're reading Exodus, is, there, is what we're experiencing at Sinai, what we're experiencing with Moses, what Israel is experiencing, is it a new covenant or is it a further unfolding of the covenant with Abraham? Because I, because you know, and I, I think JD mentioned this just kind of in passing last night. Somebody did. I, it, it all kind of blends together. But the, now that sounded like a dig, didn't it? <laughs> I didn't mean it as a dig. You know what I'm talking about. It's all kind of feeling like it's blending together, right? No. Okay, great. Um, except for this session, it will this stand out. This is going to like out. stand out for years <laughs> yes. and blazoned but, in your memories. But some might suggest that, that with Moses, there is a re, uh, kind of a, uh, uh, a resetting of the covenant of works that we find in the garden. But is the covenant with Moses a new thing? Is it an old thing? Is it an old thing being unfolded in a new way? I'm just curious what, what your opinion is on this. All of you. Is this I, another trick question? It's really not. <laughs> like I tend to see it as a, as, a, as a reiteration or a clarification, because obviously if you look at what happens in Genesis chapter 3, Essentially, what Adam and Eve do is break the first commandment, and then essentially what happens with Cain and Abel is they break the—he breaks the sixth commandment against his brother. And so you're seeing the more—we're not supposed to look at those things, and because we haven't gotten to the Ten Commandments yet, think, oh, well, they can't be held accountable for that because we don't have the Ten Commandments yet. 
in a very real sense, we are created as image bearers with an innate understanding of right and wrong, which sin tries to dull over, over time. In fact, Pharaoh is kind of the poster child for this. His heart is repeatedly hardened, you know, the more that he has brought face to face with the moral issues at stake in the, in the whole story itself. And so I don't think we can say that the giving of the law at Sinai is the most shocking thing ever to the children of Israel. Um, but I would be curious to hear, to hear what the more learned among us would say is its purpose. Uh, what is it clarifying? Like, why is it that we receive something that isn't new, um, but that is perhaps clarified? Yeah, I mean the the mention. Here is like I feel. If you had read the podcast sheet, you would know (laughs) your name was next to this question. So I did not prepare an answer. I I was I was trying to throw one on Jared, and it's just not working. Um, I think what you're saying is so important because uh, when we think of the ten commandments, it might be better to refer to them as the ten words. These are ten words that. The text says God writes with his finger, so to speak. Uh, these are from I've heard God, that before. God <laughs> this is, that's the name of Jen's book. So you're plugging her book real well right now. Way to go. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so if these words are from the very finger of God himself, okay, well, as Jen is saying, uh, there is a moral uh, DNA to them so that this is not in that sense, out of nowhere. Um, when we think about the morality of the Ten Commandments connected to the very righteousness of God himself, uh, theologians will sometimes talk about the natural law. And Jen's exactly right when she, uh, I don't know if you were referring to Romans or not, but Paul actually addresses this in the book of Romans when he says, well, what about those who were before the law? Are they excusable somehow? And Paul says, no, because this moral law of God is actually written on their very hearts. I think that's helpful because sometimes we think of the law of God uh, as something that is so disconnected from God and then so, so something so disconnected from, from us and who we are. But actually, God creates us in, in his image so that uh, the moral law is actually uh, written on our very heart, which makes the fall then not just a, uh, re- a rebellion against God himself, but also a rebellion against our own nature, we become less human in a sense. Now, one of the reasons this is so important is because, yes, I think what you're, you're sensing here is when you get to Sinai, they need that moral law infused into the, their very DNA as a people of God as now they are entering into new, new, a new chapter, new territory, liberated from Pharaoh himself. Uh, but nonetheless, that moral law continues And then it's going to actually take on color as then they are going to perform certain ceremonies, um, such as sacrifices. They then are uh, a state in a sense. And so they have to actually live in a type of society with one another in which there are also cultural consequences. And then uh, on top of all of that, they are also trying to apply this rule for their life in the covenant Obedience to that rule is very, God makes this very plain from the beginning. Obedience will result in covenant blessings. Disobedience will result, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, will result in exile. It will result even in the discipline of the Lord. So when we talk about this moral law that that builds up to this point at Sinai, it's appropriate to speak in three Uh, respects. First, there's a punitive aspect to it in which the law, uh, because we are children of Adam uh, and our nature is fallen and corrupt and and we sin based on that sinful nature, well, there is a, a heaviness to the law in which it is a curse on our heads. Uh, It condemns us even, and we stand guilty under the very law of God. Uh, We could think of it this way. John Calvin uh, talked about it this way, building off the Apostle Paul in Romans when he said, it's like holding up a mirror in which you then see yourself as you really are, the spots and the stains. And he says, you know, how crushing that is because we're drunk with a love of self, 
that the pride that you see in Genesis 3, that's in each one of us. And so when the law is like that mirror and you hold it up, you actually see what is true rather than what the, how you've made yourself in your own imagination. And then secondly, uh, there's also a sense in which the law restrains, which has huge implications then for society, not just at Sinai, but going forward, in which the wickedness that has so much potential to just destroy a people, let alone an entire society, well, in God's graciousness, the law actually restrains us from becoming the worst that we possibly could be. And then the third important facet of all of this is that when the people of God have the Spirit of God and they are made new, well, now the law also, having been justified in Christ Jesus, is the only, he's the only one who could fulfill the law on our behalf, well, now that we have the Spirit of Christ, we can actually live in obedience to God. And so the law comes along as a tutor. And this is why, you were mentioning this earlier, you have these uh, seemingly bizarre uh, statements in the Psalms from David in particular. You think of Psalm 19 um, or, or Psalm 119, in which he says things like, well, the precepts of the Lord, they are right. And then he goes on to say, they read, they rejoice the heart. They make you jump for joy. That too is not typically how we think of the law. And yet here, the law actually has a very positive That's purpose right. in, in the Christian life. Yeah. Now, and I, and I want to talk about that. And JT and Jared, I'm going to uh, put you guys on the spot here. When we think about the, light, the Christian life today, is the law irrelevant? Like, am, am I a legalist if I say Christians should delight and obeying God's law? It's a good question. They're actually, so as I do teaching, coaching, for preaching in particular, there's two questions that come up the most often. Okay. Almost every guy who's got questions about how to do this gospel-centered thing yeah. asks me two questions. One is, how do you preach the gospel every week and it not sound one note? How do you preach the gospel every week and it not just sound like the same formula, mm -hmm. which I think is a failure of exegetical imagination. They're not finding yeah. what Spurgeon would call the road from the text to Christ. Mm -hmm. They're just preaching a sermon and then trying to figure out how to copy and paste the gospel onto the end, which is better than no gospel at all. Sure. The other question, though, to your point is, what do I do with the imperatives? Yeah, that's right. Do, does this mean, like, they think to be gospel-centered is to sort of lean into a kind of antinomian mm -hmm. kind of thing. And to be fair, some people do that, yeah. that they treat, you know, they see only the first facet of, of the law, and they think that anytime you encounter an imperative, Old Covenant or New Covenant, you take that imperative, and it basically means you can't do what it says to do. Right. You're only supposed to see your inadequacy. And that is a function of the imperative, certainly. Sure that you would see them and go, I cannot do them perfectly, or I'm, I'm seeing myself in the light of God's holiness, and, and I do not measure up, and they're to push us further into Christ and into the goodness of, of, of his grace. But Christ, Paul, Peter, the rest of the, the apostles, they're not bad teachers. Right. So when you see things I'm like... I'm glad you think that, Jerry. Really <laughs> well, that would have been a very different me, episode for the remainder let, of this episode. Yeah, if you want to quote me on anything, <laughs> yeah, good. Christ and the apostles are not bad teachers. Okay. And no, to, to take a step back, because what happens is you come across these imperatives, and when Jesus says, go and do likewise, mm -hmm. or go and sin no more, or, you know... Anything from children obey your parents, husband yeah. loves you know your wives. Put on then, uh, um, you know, holy and, and and beloved ones. Put you know, put on the righteousness of Christ. Every time you see that imperative, they're they're not meaning, but you can't really do this, right? Yeah. Right. So I have to remind folks that to be gospel centered means to be gospel centered, not gospel only. Mm -hmm. That's right. There there yeah. are you know two words really. Sorry, Jen. Two words, right? Law and gospel. Mm -hmm. And we hold them in the right order. So to be gospel-centered is not to be antinomian and cast out the law, but to put it in its proper place. Right. And I love, I love the language of, of Hebrews, which kind of helps us to do this. The author of Hebrews is doing this, but in Hebrews 12 in particular, as we've been talking about Sinai, and the author is positioning the gravity, the holiness, the, the drop-deadedness of mm -hmm. the holiness of God. He's given us a picture of Sinai. I don't think he... He uses the name Sinai, but that's the, the image that he is picturing. But then he says, but you have not come to Sinai. You, you have come to Zion. Mm -hmm. 
And what he's doing there is, I think, a parallel to what Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians 3, which is to say, not that the law is bad, not that we jettison the law or disregard the law. He says the he clearly says the law is good yeah. and the law is glorious. But he very clearly says also, but the gospel is more glorious still. That's right. The the gospel exceeds, surpasses the law in glory. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, we're not becoming legalists. We're insisting that when when we're told, when we're commanded to do something. Um, it means, yes, that we can't do it perfectly, but it also means for us to do it. Yeah, that's right. But we want to see where the power to do that comes from. Yeah. And to be properly gospel-centered means that, um, you know, part of the the package gifting of the gospel is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. He's enabling us. Yeah. Uh, we're working out what he has worked in. Mm -hmm. JT, is part of discipleship moral change? Oh, absolutely. Part of discipleship's moral change. I mean, it's it's becoming the one who is learning the way of Jesus in deeper ways. And as he's the one who's perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf, and now, as Dr. Barrett said, gives us his spirit, yep. we're able to walk in greater obedience. And something else that I think can get left out of, of this conversation is, especially in some of the missional movement conversations, as we're trying to reach people, which is what a wonderful instinct. The Bible has two, at least two impulses missionally. One of those is Go and tell. Uh, Jesus is very clear about this in the Great Commission. Go make learners of me, give them a new identity in the name of the triune God, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded. But there's also a come and see element, especially yes, as we yes, think about yes. what we're talking about right now in the law, that that part of God granting his presence and the law to his people was, and the Bible's very clear about this, the nations are going to flood into Jerusalem, learning the law of God, seeing and enjoying the presence of God, and taking that back to their nations. And That's sometimes right. we forget about that in missional conversations. You are being missional when you are being obedient to the law. Yes. Our... our, our uh, uh, gospel proclamation, I think, as Jerry just helpfully said, is not just we can't do this. It's actually now we're going to go plant local churches among the nations, which are like these tiny little Jerusalems set up, the temples of God. You are the temple of God. And when you come into the temple of God, what you're going to experience is a broken people of weary sojourners and wanderers who are still struggling with the ongoing and besetting effects of sin. However, because we also have the presence of God, we are learning to live as a new society, the society of Christ that is full of the Holy Spirit, living in a new way. And Jesus mentions this too. You are a city situated upon a hill. Right. If you are this light, you shouldn't cover it up with a basket. Rather, you should you should let this light of gospel transformation shine to the nations. Man, that's so good. That they may see your good deeds. And I think that we, we forget how compelling it is to people when they see not just people who are obedient to a law, but as Dr. Barrett said, they see people who are living as the way we were meant to live, mm -hmm. like it's being human. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think about, you know, I always say um, the problem with um, once after you're saved is that sin still feels more natural to us than righteousness does. And we have to relearn and reacquire an appetite for righteousness and an appreciation for that, that righteousness is what we were built for. Yeah. Like everything about you is built for the work of holiness. Um, but we're, we've just forgotten it and we need to, we have to have it remembered to us by the Holy Spirit as he applies the, the gospel to our hearts. But it's about being human. It's not about being superhuman or being um, um, ethereal. Holy it is about being a human who is made in the image of God. Yeah, and it's not like this is in contrast with what we see in Paul's gospel presentation. After Romans 5, in Romans 6 and 7, Paul presumes that those who have encountered grace want to walk in holiness. Like that's the operative assumption of six and seven is like, what shall we say to these things? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. He cuts that off immediately. And then he begins to give them, this is the instruction of what this tension is gonna be like, walking on the streets of grace, pursuing holiness. I, I do think that, um, and I am so grateful and I'm grateful for even, Jared, I think about your writing. I, I read Gospel Awakening at a crucial moment in my discipleship and it was transformative for me. It was a true blessing. And I'm grateful for the gospel-centered, 
of the last 15, 20 years. And certainly I hope it continues to abound. But over the course of that time, this phrase was trotted out all the time to try to make the gospel big. You know, the gospel is not the good news uh, that God makes bad people good. It's the good news that God makes dead people alive. And when you look back on it, you're like, the gospel is the good news that God makes dead people alive and then, and then makes them good, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, does anybody in here thinking like it's a zero sum game between God making people alive and making them good? It's like, no, the goal is holy fellowship with God. And I don't think that we lose anything when it comes to the power of the gospel by saying, well, the gospel does make dead people alive. It does resurrection, something you could never earn and never accomplish on your own. And then with that resurrected life that God has granted you, now he invites you into the grace paved roads of holy living. I think that's a good thing, right? It's one of the great ironies, I think, of the antinomian impulse or just those who drift that way is they think they're being full gospel, all gospel. Mm. This is all grace. But what they're actually doing is denying that the gospel is power to that's change, right. that the right. gospel that's is actually power to obey God. So their gospel is actually smaller than they think it is. They think they're pressing the gospel into every corner of the room, but they actually are just in one little corner, not really seeing the fullness, the the versatility of what um, we receive through the Holy Spirit in the announcement of Christ's finished work. That's right. That's right. Well, I just just to reiterate something we've said a lot on the podcast, you need three categories for salvation. You are saved from the power, the penalty of sin in your justification. You are saved from the power of sin increasingly in your sanctification. And praise God, one day you will be saved from the presence of sin in your glorification. Mm -hmm. And once you start to nail down those three categories, you're more able to understand, how do I relate to the law? How do I relate to who I was and how I'm supposed to feel about where I am now? Um, and, and so, again, we're gradually being delivered from the power of sin, but the penalty is gone once you're past the point of justification. But I think, you know, the, the third piece of this that we don't get to spend a lot of time or we don't often spend a lot of time celebrating in gospel-centeredness is think about how sin has caused trouble for you just today. Mm -hmm. And now imagine when we've been there 10,000 years with no sin. Mm -hmm. Like... Sin is the product of finite humans. It is not infinite. Mm -hmm. And it will go away. Mm -hmm. And all of the things that you are battling, whether it's because of your own sin or someone else's, all of the things that cloud your vision of God and make it hard to be the human you were created to be, and imagine those things gone. Yeah. That's eternity. Yeah. So, it is yeah, we need it yeah. all. Let's celebrate that. Well, y'all have been filling up this Slido for Q&A. And so I am going to start moving through some of these questions. If I use one of your questions, please come find me afterwards. And I've got some stuff that I'd love to give you. The first one here, I'm going to point to uh, my, my Trinity guys, um, the two of you in the middle. I think we there. all should be Trinity people We're, up here. Oh my I think gosh. that's just like baseline Christianity, but I know what you mean. I, yeah. No, I, yeah, I, <laughs> think I like that's to a good say note. that JT is the water and I'm the ice oh, and no. Kyle is the... Nope. Miss. Apparently we're not all Trinity people up here. <laughs> <laughs> I may not be a Trinity guy, but even I know that's heresy. <laughs> Uh, so Dr. Barrett and JT, this is from Jan. Um, and it says, God, the father is never sent in scripture. So in the old Testament, which member of the Trinity was with Moses and Moses saw his back. I hope you're with me on was this. It the pre -incarnate? I really hope you're with me on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this could be bad uh, for me. So was it the pre-incarnate Christ? So really, who, who did Moses see? Whose back did Moses see? You know what I'm saying? Who That's is the trolling us on the Q and A? That's yeah, what no, I want right. to know right now. <laughs> One of you has to go first, and one of you could be wrong. That's the risk of it. Okay, well, that's, yeah, we know okay, that. Okay, just making sure. I at least got it right first. Thank you, yeah, I appreciate now that. Now as I endeavor a little bit further. All right. I mean, my, we, this is, we've talked about this a lot, so we don't need to talk about it a lot longer. We'd love to get to other questions too, but I believe just given the, the uh, nature of operations within the Trinity, God the Father is eternally unsent, God the Son being eternally sent, and God the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from both the Father and the Son, we know, at least I, I, am, I am fairly convinced, it cannot be God the Father, because he's eternally unsent in the same way that I would say in the burning bush or in the garden. Uh, it is, I, I would say, a pre-incarnate uh, Christ, the eternal Son of God. All right, Dr. Barrett, settle, settle a you. debate we've been having for years. <laughs> 
Well, I think- Raise your hand if you agree with me, by the way, because that's all that really matters. Yeah. Okay. You wouldn't say it's the father. I think when we talk about the Trinity, right, we have to also- so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, just adding to this conversation. Um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hold strong, brother. Hold strong. Keep going. I, I like where it's headed, okay? Just keep you. on going. In the text itself, you may remember it says, well, he, it's almost a, a bit of a reprimand to Moses. There's some stern words. It's Moses, no one can see me and live. Right? So, so there you have it. Uh, this is a reminder to us that though we are like Moses hiding behind the rock and we, by God's gracious accommodation, we uh, are able to see his backside, so to speak. Well, this is God's accommodation to us. And yet at the same time, this God is incomprehensible. Uh, And so when God says that to Moses, he means it. Uh, Moses is finite. This God is infinite. Uh, So there's a creator-creature distinction there that I think you're touching on that has to be respected and so often today is completely conflated. Um, We often see this with the doctrine of the Trinity itself. Uh, All that to say, when we speak, I I think when we come to that text, and it's not just that one, right? There are other texts as well in which that question should come to your mind. Uh, Like the rock? Yeah, is this... Yes, is this rock, you drank from it, this rock is Christ. Uh, The New Testament authors have no hesitation at that point. (laughs) I know sometimes that we do, but the New Testament authors have no hesitation at that point of reading the Old Testament Christologically. Why? Because they understand that we're to read the Bible as Christians. Hmm. Uh, This is... Next question. Uh, Keep going. (laughs) So all that to say, when we come to those texts, we have to remember uh, the one God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, Augustine put it this way, that the external works of God are indivisible. So every time you come to a text, it's not as if you have to pick one of the persons of the Trinity and exclude the others. Um, which I know you're not saying that. Yeah, um, I believe that. Yeah. Uh, this, this doctrine of uh, inseparable operations is mm-hmm. crucial. Otherwise, we divide the Trinity, which would be quite disastrous. And yet at the same time, this is the beauty of God's revelation to us. I mean, imagine this, this incomprehensible God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three persons, n- not one person is less in, than the other, mm-hmm. not less in glory or anything. And now we we open the Gospel of John, and he says, what? He says, this Son, who, as, as you just said, is eternally from the Father, eternally begotten. John loves this language, right? That the only begotten Son, eternally begotten from the Father, is now sent from the Father. And John says, this is the Word made flesh. Mm -hmm. How gracious is God's accommodation to us? Because we, who are in such a humble state of finitude and fallenness, now God has actually revealed himself to us in flesh itself so that they saw Jesus, they touched Jesus. Mm -hmm. And even when Jesus ascends and goes to be with the Father, the Holy Spirit is now said to be with us so intimately that we are actually called temples of the Holy Spirit. So all that to say, I think it's very appropriate. We need to read the Old Testament with Christological eyes. And yet at the same same time, don't ever forget that it is the whole Trinity who is bringing about this great work of salvation from beginning to end so that even the incarnation itself is the one inseparable work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, though Christ himself is the one who actually assumes that human nature to his person. Yeah, and I just I agree, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And even Jesus' disciples struggled with this, saying, when are we going to see the Father? And he says, because they're kind of asking, yeah. and they're not asking Trinitarian <laughs> questions like this, but he says, have I been with you for so long? Yeah. And you don't know that the Father and I 
are one. And so we always are trying to move back and forth between this one essence and three distinct persons. And and again, Jesus right after that says, and I'm leaving. And by the way, the Holy Spirit's coming and it's good for yeah. you. So. We're still good. Yeah. yeah, yeah we're, everything's You're gonna still going to be just fine. There we go. Um, I, uh, Jared and Jen, I want to ask you this. This is from TJ. It says, what's the best advice you give to Bible students and teachers on finding the main point and application of a narrative passage? Well, the exegetical outline work of a narrative passage is a little different because you're essentially just charting the plot points. Mm -hmm. What happened? What happened next? What happens next? What happens next? And one thing that I have found, this doesn't work with every narrative passage, but if you're eventually making the translation or converting your exegetical outline to a homiletical outline, which is actually the points that you're communicating, you're preaching or you're teaching, your sermon points or your Bible lesson points, whatever they are, Sometimes what can be helpful is to think in terms of the narrative of the gospel, like the plot points of the gospel, right? Um, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or God, man, slash sin, Christ response, and ask related to those plot points of the text, what does this story say about God? What does this story say about man or sin or our problem before God? What does this story say? Now, if you're in an Old Testament narrative, it's not going to say anything explicitly about Christ, but what does this story say about the solution? And maybe it's just sort of there between the lines. There may not be a clear, right? So many Old Testament narratives, sometimes they seem open-ended or they, you're in judges and it's just very dark and you don't actually see, but you can see between the lines. It's pointing to something as the solution to this. What's the solution? And then finally, what's our response to that? In that mix, you can see what the main point would be, which as Christians— Christian preachers, teachers, students, uh, disciplers, we want the main point to be what Christ has done. Um, our response is important, but the central thing that makes us Christian is the finished work of Christ. So the main point may be whatever that's, where, where, whatever lands in that solution section, the problem solution section. So in particular narratives, you'll say, well, the problem is clearly that, we, you know, that they're... Uh, um, uh, you know, everyone is, you know, does what's right in their own eyes. So everyone is just sort of their own moral judge and moral relativism is the, you know, prevailing value. And so there, there is no fear of God. That's the problem. What's the solution to that? And that becomes sort of the main point of the passage. I, I don't know that it works for every single text. I mean, one beauty of the Bible is just how complex and nuanced and variegated it is. Uh, but that's one way, I think, to kind of get at it. So I don't want, that was fantastic. I'm going to add two tools that I also use when I'm working through that process. And one is to ask, what is missing in the story if this portion drops out? Like what, what gets lost? And that helps you to focus in on what, whatever particular, per, per, okay, particular passage you are teaching is adding to our understanding. So you have to kind of picture it not being there to understand why it is there. And then another thing that I think is really important just in terms of building the literacy reflex among your listeners is to ask, where else have we seen a similar thing? And so obviously pointing to um, all of the New Testament um, connections is important, but so much of Old Testament narrative is recapitulation. It's repeating something from somewhere else. And so when you start to show people, guess what? We saw it here and we saw it here and we saw it here and we see it here. And then guess what? This is why by the time we see it here, think of all of the tension that's been built up through the Old Testament narratives by the time you reach the New Testament and the tension is released. And so that's a, it helps them understand the Bible as a whole better, but it also helps them understand. I Often I will hear a, a an entire story cherry-picked out of the New Testament, out of the Old Testament narratives and taught as a standalone. And very few of those stories don't have some conversation partners in earlier or later portions of the Old Testament. That's good. That's good. One one last question here, but before I ask it, I just want to point out two things to you. First is that this QR code that's up here will get you signed up for a newsletter and we'd like to send you some stuff after this. So if you'd like to scan this, it'll give you a link to sign up for our newsletter that JT, Jen and I work on and we'd love to send you some stuff after this podcast. Um, I do want to end with this question and I, we have two and a half minutes. So I am looking for lightning round style answers um, on this. And it, this question was asked this way. How do we teach the law faithfully to to our children who are tiny unbelievers, and so they're unable to keep it at present. How do we teach them? So I'm going lightning round, and I'm going to start with Jen, and we're going to work that way, and then I get to go last. So 
Remember that your business as parents is not to make converts, but to make disciples. And so when you give your children the law, but you also exercise grace in their ability to obey it, you are actually illustrating something that is a key discipleship formation moment. If you will let disciples generate converts instead of the other way around, you're going to find a lot of fruitfulness in your parenting. JT, you're I mean, up I would next. say like the exact same. That, that's the answer. Okay. <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> that's great. Dr. Barrett? Yeah, I would say uh, go to the law to point them to Christ. And once they meet Christ, come back to the law so that they can see how Christ is in them. It's one of the great ironies of life that I always want to please those who seem uh, more forgiving and gracious to me. We think instinctually that we're, we take advantage of those people, and maybe in you know micro bursts of our life we do. But I just, like even just in college, the profs that liked me that approved of me, liked my work, I wanted to work harder for and do more for. I think the spirit of grace and forgiveness with your children will incline them over time, perhaps not in the day by day, but over time, to want to please you. And that makes uh, lends itself to more God-honoring obedience than simply the behavior modification of you know, consequences and, and, you know, the hammer of the law, I guess. That's good. And the last thing I would say is uh, read, pray, and sing the Psalms as a family together. And you'll introduce them to somebody who was so convinced of the sweetness of the law, he'd write songs about it. And I think that'll speak a beautiful story into their hearts as well. Um, uh, can you give a hand for Jared and Matthew? <laughs> What you, what you saw with Jared and Dr. Barrett is just a small picture of the incredible faculty that Midwestern has assembled. We're thankful for their partnership. If you want to find out about those 100 uh, first year full tuition scholarships for residential master students, go to mbts.edu slash cohorts. They also have done a great job of redesigning their program. I think they have the most integrated and aligned uh, master's to PhD model that you could possibly have. You should go check it out. Their emphases transcend from MAs to MDivs all the way up to the doctoral level. They are being thoughtful. JT and I have said, we have always wanted to see seminaries use the momentum they have like Midwestern is doing it right now. And so they are more than just a cool logo on a sweater that you didn't get because they ran out. They are a substantive school and you should go check them out. Thank you guys for joining the podcast today. We're excited to hang out with you. Bless you. Have a great rest of the conference. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.